The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews over the next six weeks with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. I'm Peter Tharlarsen. Today, I'll be talking to Adam Tews. Adam is professor of history at Columbia University in New York and the author of acclaimed books about the economy of nasty Germany and about the remaking of the global order in the aftermath of World War I. His newest work, however, ventures into much more contemporary territory. It's called Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. It's a sweeping study of the events that led up to the financial crisis and how that then ended up triggering the Eurozone crisis and other events, including Britain's vote to leave the European Union and the election of Donald Trump. Adam Tews, welcome to The Exchange. So I'd like to start with your decision to take on this topic. What prompted you to tackle such a broad sweep of recent global history? And do you think that a decade is a sufficiently long time frame to give us the necessary perspective? Well, um, it's, it's, a obvious, it's a question that I feel the force of as a historian, like what on earth am I doing down this end? Um, I started out as an economist, so in a sense I've been on a long diversion into history and I feel with this book I'm coming back to questions which preoccupied me at the beginning of my career, which was when I I studied economics. Um, But I think also uh, in in my recent work I've been really preoccupied with the question of transatlantic power and transatlantic relations. And it was really when I discovered that aspect of the crisis of 08 and its aftermath that I felt, okay, maybe this is a project that I should take on. Um, because in a, 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 the most recent book I did was on the aftermath of World War I and the Wilsonian moment, and that was a story really of the ascent of American power. I looked at the way in which Nazi Germany's history was shaped by the emerging power of the United States and the anticipation, if you like, of a unipolar moment dominated by the US. And all of a sudden, digging into the events of 08 and afterwards, I discovered not just an American crisis, but a crisis of transatlantic proportions the management of which also has a hugely underrated transatlantic component. This is one of the great, I think, underestimated stories. Both of the 08 crisis and the Eurozone um, is the extent to which, in the background, the United States is, in fact, in a very dramatic way, acting as the stabilising force. Is 10 years enough to to really uh, get to grips with this? Um, I'm tempted to say that it would have been easier if I'd been able to finish this book even sooner, right? I mean, the the problem with doing it now, and I started writing the book in 2013, is at that point, I think, we felt we had narrative closure on this crisis. We knew what had happened. Um, We knew how the crisis had been stabilized. And it was indeed a story, essentially, of the, of a, of a triumph of American technocratic pragmatic management, uh, culminating in Mario Draghi doing the proper central bankers thing and saying whatever it takes, which is a sort of belated Americanization of the ECB. And on the other hand, Barack Obama's re-election as president in November uh, uh, 2012, which, as it were, seems to seal off the Sarah Palin kind of option that was looming in 08. And that was the moment in which I thought, right, OK, fine, now this is a story we can write. It's the second coming, if you like, of American liberal hegemony. Um, 
warts and all, of course, but nevertheless, one where the wheels were put back on the bus. And that was the moment, ironically, in which I started writing this story. And I wasn't the only one. There's a whole series of, well, the memoirs begin to come out at that moment. And if you think about the tone of that literature, it's not self-congratulatory, that would be unfair, but it's at least speaking against from the solid ground that we have now restabilized this. And of course, we know what happens next. Uh, political, uh, a growing sense of political fallout, a, a deeper and deeper sense of the geopolitical consequences. And now, of course, also in the emerging markets, increasing worries about whether or not really we have restored a uh, stability to the whatever we're going to call the system. So in some ways, sort of what looked initially like a sort of a reassertion of American financial dominance, yes. uh, hegemony, yes. uh, then actually becomes now Much more fragile. I mean, it's a much more complex story in the sense that in technical terms, I think, and this is to me the true measure of the alarmingness of our present condition, if you look at the history of 08, you cannot but feel the significance of the Fed and the US Treasury in a dollar-based global financial system, right? This is what the crisis really reveals. But of course, what are the political preconditions for the American nation state to be able to act as a global stabilizer, which is what it, they did, the, the Obama, well, it's the transition, right? It's the transition from the late Bush administration to the Obama administration, this very seamless handoff with people like Bernanke and Geithner serving as the, as the segue between the two and the Democratic majority in Congress underpinning this in political terms. Those are, the, those are the essential political ingredients of America's ability to act. And of course, none of those ingredients are, are there anymore at all. There's no, there's no confidence at this moment in either the executive branch or the legislative branch of the United States government uh, and its capacity to really step up to this role. So it's when you put those two things together, I think, that you begin to get a real sense um, of, of quite how fragile our current moment is. I don't think there's any doubt that the dependence of the global financial system on the dollar ultimately as its main currency is, if perhaps in some of the data show even more pronounced now than it was in 08, it's moved its centre more to the emerging markets, more to Asia, away from Europe. But nevertheless, the, that dependence is still real. But you, I, mean, I think that there is a tendency to um, be very gloomy for many reasons. There are many good reasons to be gloomy. Um, but you do, I mean, you think you make the point early in the book that, you know, a history of ten, uh, written 10 years after the Wall Street crash of 1929 would have been written in 1939. Yeah. So, you know, by that benchmark, you know, arguably things have gone a bit better than they did then. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's extremely unhelpful to think in terms of analogies in modern history. Everything is moving too fast, too quickly, right? Whatever problems we have are new problems. They're not the problems of the 1930s. Likewise, the analogy between, I don't know, Trump and fascism, I think, is profoundly unhelpful, right? We're not in the world of 1930s dictatorships. That isn't our problem. We have very, I mean, democracy is no doubt in peril. It's being undermined in very fundamental ways, but not by those old threats. So in the same way, absolutely, the... The, 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 the dynamism of the world economy, the, the, the incredibly speed with which things are changing, the, 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 the extraordinary sort of escalation of the rise of China. I mean, the, China was already rising before 08, but it's really in the last 10 years that we've seen it break through to a position of not global dominance, but, you know, peer status, if you like. Um, all of that means that whatever problems we have are not you know, that isn't, I think, the role, the useful role of a historian. I mean, some people think of the role of history as being constantly reminding us of how things are always the same, constantly repeating. Frankly, I think that's dangerous under the current circumstances. <laughs> Our problems are new and what historians can help us to understand is just quite how radically unlike any previous situation this is. It's more, to me, the analogy is more like climate change or 
some kind of hockey stick phenomenon like that, where the, the, what a historical perspective allows you to do is to grasp quite how radically new the challenges are that face us. And the challenges now are not those of 08 anymore either. Right? So the challenges of 08 were really a old 20th century Atlantic-dominated financial system in which the major components were the European and American banks interlocked through the city of London and Wall Street. If there is a new global financial crisis, it's very unlikely to be on that axis again. I mean, surely what we need to be worrying about now would be some East Asian uh, US uh, or possibly even just a U a, an East Asian-centered crisis, which was in almost entirely offshore and yet denominated in dollars. So. That would be, I think, the, the role for me of a historian in our current moment looking back is to point simply to this, you know, this exponential curve of change that we're on. As you sort of decided to tackle the topic and did your research, what was the most surprising discovery or series of discoveries that you made? Well, I, I think to understand it as a transatlantic crisis, I think this is the single... This is the thing which connected it to my previous work, convinced me that I might have something to say about it and that a historian of that field might have something to say about it. And then I, as I followed this line, convinced me that really the existing narratives out there are, are missing and essential, essential pieces of the puzzle. So if you think about uh, crisis management, what we tend to focus on is questions of solvency and bailouts and capital injection. And each country, as it were, fought those struggles case by case. And each country is deeply preoccupied with its internal crises, like RBS and Lloyds on the one hand, uh, Citigroup, Vacovia, you know, Washington Mutual, Lehman, those are the American dramas. If you go to Germany, it's, uh, it's um, Hupo Real Estate, Commerzbank Dresdner. Each country suffers its crisis, as it were, as a national crisis, um, Ireland being perhaps the quintessential case of this. Um, what, you, what, I, what I suddenly, with a sort of shocking, um, uh, it was a shocking realisation, was just how interconnected these crises were, and not just in the sense that they all rippled out through funding markets, which affected everyone, but that the solution also ultimately came bound to the willingness and the ability of the US authorities to supply dollars to the global banking system. I mean, the single most shocking realisation for me is that of the Fed's liquidity programmes um, in the fall of 2008, the autumn of 2008, the majority of each one of those programmes, except with one exception, went to European banks. Um, we have been talking for decades about the way in which globalisation means that large-scale transnational corporations mean that the nation-state is increasingly fragile and irrelevant as a centre of economic governance. At that moment, it actually sunk into me that even as we watch this crisis, and even in retrospect, we still haven't fully digested what that means. Because what that means in the financial crisis is that one nation-state, the United States, will serve as the lender of last resort to the entire global financial system. Um, and... Even if you read, say, the memoirs of Ben Bernanke or somebody like that, that message, it's there. Of course, he knows it. He was you know, key to the entire operation, but it's scattered in a kind of almost absent-minded way through a text which is largely preoccupied with American dramas. And if you read the European accounts of the crisis, they have exactly that same feel. That was, so that was one real, real shock um, to, to realise that we could reconceive this. And the Eurozone then likewise, of course, is not just a European crisis. The Eurozone is one in which the American financial system is deeply entangled. On For that very reason, the Obama administration has it very high, if not exactly top of stack, top of stack, then very close to the top of the stack throughout, uh, throughout its first term. The other, the other real surprise for me um, was... Uh, 
the extent to which the crisis ripples out from this transatlantic West European American core uh, to Eastern Europe. I mean, uh, the, apart from the, the Fed data, the other really astonishing, um, astonishing uh, chart is one which shows you uh, the IMF's predictions for growth um, across the world uh, as, in, as of 2007 and of 2009. So kind of before and after take of what expectations were for 2010. And all the countries, I believe, that suffered the severest shocks are the top 15, the top 20, are either East European or ex-Soviet republics. So across that zone uh, of Eastern Europe um, and, the, and the front line of the old Cold War, uh, you see a huge shock to growth expectations uh, in Russia itself, but in all of the stands of Central Asia, in the Baltic states, in Hungary and in Ukraine. And of course, when you see that against the backdrop of the unfolding drama of the new confrontation between the West and Russia and the battleground in Ukraine from the end of 13, 14 onwards, all of a sudden you begin to wonder about the economic, as it were, destabilization that took place in that in that sphere in 0809, and you suddenly realise that the coincidence, and I think it is broadly speaking a coincidence, between uh, the financial crisis in August, September, October, November 08, and the first shooting war uh, in Europe since the Yugoslav conflict in Georgia uh, in August 08, is, is fateful. It may be a coincidence. It had to do with NATO expansion policy and the Russian response to that doesn't appear to be in any kind of big thinking, grand strategic coordination in Washington. Um, so you stumble into this coincidence. But if you're in Kiev, uh, that double whammy, the, the, the geopolitical, huge increase in geopolitical tension at the same time as your sources of external funding collapse and you have to go to the IMF, those are the preconditions for the destabilization of Ukrainian politics, the consequences of which we then witness in 2013. So those, I think, are, the, for me, the the... the the realisation that this is a transatlantic problem at its heart and that it has geopolitical, geopolitical ramifications as well were I, the two moments where I thought, OK, this is, a, this is a story like the ones I'm familiar with from the interwar period. It's not the same story, but it has the same kind of dimensions to it. Um, do you, did you have enough information, do you think? I mean, obviously there have been, you've talked about the books, the memoirs from central bankers and so forth. Obviously there have been countless reports, official investigations, academic central bank research, countless speeches, and obviously judging by the footnotes in the book, you've absorbed quite a lot of those. Um, but I wonder, if there's, is there anything missing? Is there anything that you think that is out there in terms of, I don't know, uh, minutes or government documents that would shed light on this or, or might change the way people think about it? I mean... I as a historian, obviously, you just you want more. You're, it's a it's a it's a absolutely voracious discipline. Um, this this book was written as a first slice through the mass of material that you were alluding to. Um, there is also, of course, the extraordinary wealth of experience of people that lived through this. I mean, almost everyone is still alive, um, and uh, there are oral histories, countless oral histories, to be written as well. Um, in terms of documentation, the single most the single most eye-opening set of documents were those which Bloomberg um, forced out of the Fed um, when Bloomberg pursued a case against the Fed, um, a Freedom of Information case, to gain access to the Fed's files on their liquidity programs. And the Fed resisted this because no central bank 
likes to expose its day-to-day -day operations in providing support to banks. The case they made was that, of course, you could have a deterrent effect because it could, it, it could make banks less willing to uh, go to the Fed for liquidity at a time that they needed it um, because it would make them look weak. And this would be very counterproductive from the point of view of Fed crisis management. Uh, but the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in favour of Bloomberg and forced the Fed to expose and reveal uh, this incredible data set of day-by-day, bank-by-bank numbers on, on liquidity support, which we have never had before for any central bank support action in any crisis, all the, way back to the, all the way back to the days of budget in the 1850s. Everyone's understood that central banks have to do this as a lender of last resort when liquidity, when banks suffer runs and even good banks are suffering problems as well as bad banks. Um, but no one's ever been actually able to look inside one of these almost in real time to see and if we could have that kind of data for the Bank of England or the ECB or Swiss National Bank, that would, of course, be absolutely fascinating. And what we do have is the money that what we do have is good records on what the money that the Fed supplied to the ECB, the Bank of England and the Swiss National Bank by way of the so-called liquidity swap lines. Um, but we do not know what they did with that next. Uh, we, um, there, is, there, are, there is such data, but it's available only to privileged insiders within the central bank system and only on an anonymized basis. So regular Joe academic and Joe public is, has no access to this rec these records. Uh, if, if one takes seriously the idea that this was essentially a bank-driven story, uh, then that interaction between the central banks and the private banks is the, is, the, is the core of it. And I don't know how many decades it will be before those European, more secretive European central banks uh, will, will, be willing to, will be willing to surrender it. I mean, they're not more secretive than the Fed. The Fed resisted as well, but the Fed lost the case and has since been very cooperative in providing the data. It's all online. Everyone can look it up. I mean, if you want to know how much liquidity Barclays took in any given day in fall of 08, it's right there for you to see. So how do you, um, given, given, given sort of the emphasis on the, in this book on the dollar-based system and as you, the things that we've just been talking about, um, how, do you, how do you sort of assess that dollar-based system now? Because on the one hand, you could argue it's as strong as ever and it's still possible for the US Treasury to essentially cut Russian companies off from the financial system yeah. just by saying, you know, we decide we don't like you. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it would seem, you know, given the political context, uh, it would be much harder for uh, the Fed today or, or an administration today to do the kind of liquidity support initiatives that they did in 2008, even if they wanted to. Yeah. So how do, it, seems, it seems a bit of a paradox there. How would you sort of, how would you sum that up? I agree. I mean, I think the, that is the defining uh, mark of our current moment is profound tension between different dimensions of American power and influence in the world. Um, the one, I think, constructive step that the Americans took, and uh, it was the inside regulators within the, within the Fed, so Dan Tarillo and people like this, um, slightly out of the limelight, uh, what they understood was the risks that the entanglement of the huge European banks in the American dollar system had created for the Fed. Their hand was forced. They had to, the Fed had to act in the way that it did because the European, it wasn't out of selflessness or you know, altruism or even a general, certainly not in public, the Fed cannot articulate the view that it's managing the global economy for the global economy's sake. The Fed is an American institution. Uh, its mission is to stabilize the American economy. The reason it had to act in 08 was that the European banks owned a quarter of America's securitized mortgages and a third of the really bad private label uh, MBS, the most dangerous 
portion, which the Fed and the Treasury were desperately trying to stabilize the market for. So the very last thing they needed was a huge fire sale of you know, uh, squeezed European banks, which couldn't raise dollar funding to back their balance sheets. So that is why they provided the liquidity support. Now, one thing they did was to make the swap lines a permanent institution. And the last time they were switched on in anger and earnest was during the immediate aftermath of the Brexit referendum. The Bank of England and the Fed activated the line, and that's the message the market needed. So that at an institutional level was still possible to do. But obviously, these are politically sensitive things to do, especially under the current climate. And so what the US regulators very aggressively pushed to the detriment of European banking in the US was a disentangling of the European and the American banking systems. So the fact that Deutsche Bank is the last global investment bank standing in you know, many people's eyes, the fact that Barclays has scaled down its American business as rapidly as it has and many of the others have pulled back is not accidental or simply a matter of business decision. This was pushed hard by the American regulators who finally insisted that if you're running a bank in America, then you really ought to have some capital in America too to back that bank. Whereas previously, they'd allowed the Europeans to keep their capital in Europe, which under a situation of crisis and where you can no longer swap European currencies into dollars cheaply is, is not actually adequate support for a big European banking, American banking operation. So they in de facto disentangled the European and American banking systems. And I think that is a source really of of stability in the current moment. They're not as tightly interlocked as they were before 08, and the European banks are not as ambitious as they were before 08 in trying to break into the American market. The new source of instability, on the other hand, is in Asia. Right, and that's where, that's where I think everyone's eyes are on the EM emerging market risks, where we have seen a huge increase in private sector dollar borrowing um, in Asia, but also in places like Turkey. And there are clear currency mismatches there where their business is in a local currency and their liabilities are in dollars. And the question really there is, would, would the Fed, even under the best possible circumstances, best possible political circumstances, would it understand itself as having any mandate to really support uh, liquidity support actions there? And in 08, they expanded the envelope. Mexico got a swap line. South Korea got a swap line, right? And this was a very conscious decision on the part of the Fed to upgrade certain class of EM out of the IMF category. So they're no longer going to have to go to the IMF for support. They're going to receive Fed support. Whether that would extend across the board to much of East Asia at that, this moment is a, is a really difficult question, an open question. Under Yellen, it looked like the Fed was heading in a globalist direction. The interest rate decisions in 1516 when China is edgy are very interesting from this aspect. They pull back from tapering in 15. This is where the book ends, really, is taking the 1516 near-miss crisis in China as a sort of, this is the shape of the things to come. In an optimistic world of global cooperative management, the Fed would do that kind of thing. That might not be the kind of crisis we face, and that's certainly not the political environment we have in America right now. The, the future horizon is not one of increasing American dominance. Uh, the question really is how quickly its relative power declines, and the policy of the American government now could only accelerate that. That's absolutely fascinating. I think probably a good note on which to finish. Um, Adam Toots, thank you very much for coming in well, to chat to us. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Exchange. Uh, this episode was produced by Ben Kellerman. If you haven't already, you can sign up for future podcasts in this series on iTunes and check out views on this and a wide range of other subjects at breakingviews.com.